Yes, hello folks, welcome to Special Episode of Global Football Show. I'm your host as always, Phil Brown, joined with my excellent co-host Zach Lowy, and joined with the great friend of the show, long-term journalist, the fantastic Mark Ogden from ESPN, a friend of mine. It's great to have Mark on the show. It's been a while. Unfortunately, it looks like I won't get to see you this summer on the tour. We're going to cover the Women's World Cup. Uh, yeah. Great to see the women doing so well and getting legitimate coverage during the international break, which is great. Uh, with some great games of the women's uh, during that period. Uh, I was watching the Celtic Rangers game, which was chippy enough. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you're just back from Dublin after watching Ireland lose 1-0. Um, Lots to talk to you about today, man. I want to talk to you about United Takeover. Obviously, lots of stuff going on there. Talk to you a little bit about Spurs. Um, once again, sacking another manager. Uh, I'll talk to you a little bit about FFP with Everton and maybe some things with Chelsea related to that as well and FFP and Graham Potter's situation. I want to talk to you about the freak that is Erling Holland and what your opinion is on him. And if we get time, we'll ask you a little bit about Arsenal. So thanks for coming on, Mark. How are you doing, mate? I'm good, yeah. Yeah, good. Just like I said, back from Dublin watching the... Uh game last night, I thought, you know, Mike Manu made some fantastic saves at the end and Ireland could have got something out of it, but I think ultimately there's a massive gulf between the teams, but, mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is and a lot of the big nations are pulling away from the smaller nations now and it's a gap you don't see closing. Yeah, I mean, back when I was growing up, Ireland were at least, you were able to be competitive, um, even if you weren't as technically gifted you you could you could close that gap i was watching the highlights of in 1981 england ireland uh wembley the one each and it was up and under football no question but you could put better teams under pressure this way and now it seems like that's getting harder and harder to do you have to be much more technical to, to, to close that gap and um it is a bit concerning but i hope in some that though, sense, Phil, just on that quickly yeah that, that jack charlton team mm. if you speak to the players who played in that game they will tell you they will to the blue in the face that what they did was what Pep Guardiola has brought in at Barcelona, the, mm. the high press, you know, not giving the opposition time on the ball. Yeah. And the Jack Charlton, it was get stuck on, get stuck into them, lads, don't give them any time, put them under pressure. Well, put them under pressure was the phrase, wasn't it? Sure. Obviously, no, I mean... they taking it on a different level with the way that they retain the possession, but the basic principle is don't give the opposition time to do what they want to do. No, it's funny because you say, because, I mean, good friend of mine out here is Rabbi Earl, and we often talk about that with Wimbledon, is that... Um, what gets overlooked a lot was there were some really good players in that Wimbledon team that could play football, you know, and in the same sense, Ireland had some really good players. If there perhaps is one positive to come from it, it makes it clearly Ireland that they need to take control of their own development and start leaving it up to England as well, players for them and, and, and are taking advantage of the granny rule. So hopefully that well, produces that. You know, Evan Ferguson came through Bohemians yep. and turned down and moved to Liverpool, went to Brighton, thought it was a, the right career path. And he's got to say he made the right choice. He, he looked a really good player. He had a difficult night against Canati and Pamacano last night, but that's just a great learning process. He's 18 and he looks, you know, we all know that Man United are looking for a striker. I'm not saying he's a solution right now, but in terms of long-term, I think if somebody gets hold of him now, sorry, Brighton, but the reality is if a big club gets hold of him now, he could be, he could be a top player for the next 10 years. Yeah, he's a bright spark and he's at one of the best fo- run football clubs in the, in the country, to be fair, Brighton. Um, so let's see what happens. There. I, mean, I want to ask you about um, United Takeover. Obviously, this is something in your wheelhouse. You're familiar with what's going on. Uh, I've had a disconnect from it myself, to be honest, because depends on when you check the news, depends on what you read. Um, there's been so many briefings going on that contradict each other. This bid's going in, that bid's going in, this bid's going in last. Um Partly the cynic in me looks at the fact that uh, the Qataris bid last. 
And knowing how people do business on that level, it wouldn't surprise me if someone was on the inside telling them where the rest of the bids were and where they needed to be. Allegedly, they've all come in under the Glazer valuation. Um, it's going to cost a lot to keep the club. I don't know if they can get the money, but what, what, what do you know about this? What, what do you know about this? It's the latest. Well, right from the outset, I was told that the Glazers don't want to sell, that Joel doesn't want to sell. He would you know, do all he could to keep hold of the club. And obviously we know that four of the Glazers want to sell. Um, mm -hmm. Kevin, Darcy, Brian and Edward. And, not, and some of them have already sold up pretty much all their shares. Avram sold a few, but I think he's he's on board with Joel. And the, the, what I was told was that Joel has been frustrated that over the years he hasn't been able to take the club where he wants to take it, where he thinks he should go, because he had to get, you know, five of his brothers and sisters to say, yes, it's a good idea. So we all know that Elliot Management have come in as a potential backer, shall we say. And, you know, that, if I was a United fan, that would worry me because they're, you know, activist investors and they, they would really... You know, the Glazers with an activist investor would be quite a scary prospect in terms of what, what they could do and what it would mean financially for the club. They would have to be a return very quickly. But it's the idea for that is that they would supply the money to get the ground done, Carrington done and maybe strengthen the squad. Now, I don't think any of the fans would take that. I think that I think the Glazers have become a toxic brand as it is and I don't think they could stay in any shape or form. But it's, it's something that they, certainly Joel, is, is keen to do. Now, beyond that, we know that Sheikh Jassim and Jim Radcliffe are the, the two bidders, public bidders that are fighting out to to buy the club. But I, I'm with you on this, I, to the point where there's so many kind of incremental news updates. It's not really news. I mean, a lot of it's been stating the obvious, you know, there's a deadline and a bid goes in. And, you know, if I'm reading that the deadline's tomorrow and then on the next day I'm reading that somebody's put a bid in, it's like, well, <laughs> it's a paragraph at the bottom of the story. The, the, the next development is either X or Y buy the club or X or Y pull out or the Glazers keep it. The rest of it, it's just it's froth basically. It's just, yeah. it's not really substantial news. It's just, but, but because it's Man United, and because we know how the us in the media work, any any Man United development is a big story in terms of right. it drives traffic. But when you when you look between the layers, there's not a lot there really. It's basically what we already know. Mark, I wanted to ask you about a report from your colleague Duncan Castles. Uh, the Qatari plan to mold Manchester United, Paris Saint-Germain, and Sporting Braga into European football's most powerful multi-club network. Uh, we already know that the Qataris own Paris Saint-Germain. They hold a, a controlling stake in Braga. And I do think that there's a lot of uh, potential positives from Braga, as well as uh, potentially United standpoint, having Braga as somewhat of a feeder club. But I still can't quite wrap my head around how the Qataris potentially plan to have two super clubs like Manchester United and Paris Saint-Germain in their ownership without there being a conflict of interest. I'm curious, you know, what do you think of this situation? Do you feel like that could be a potential uh, roadblock in the coming years? I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of issues there. And I think, obviously, if I was a Braga fan, I wouldn't be very happy about basically being the, the feeder club for the big clubs in, in Europe. But obviously, we know that in Portugal, they, they bring a lot of players through from South America, Africa, which enables them to move to the Premier League and Certainly, the Premier League, because of the Brexit issue, makes it a an issue. So, United will certainly benefit from that if that was the case. In terms of PSG and United, well, we, we keep being told, obviously, that the Sheikh Jassim bid isn't related to QSI and, and you know PSG. So, I take the word for it. But uh, beyond that, if if there are connections and links, I think we have to accept the realities that most of the money now is you know located in in one small part of the world, and that's the Middle East and the Gulf because they have. 
natural resources which enable them to have these projects. Now, it would be very kind of naive for anyone to think that on that basis that rich people or rich families in those countries couldn't, you know, buy lots of clubs or even if one rich family wanted to buy two clubs, who could stop it? Because where, is, where else is the money coming from? It's coming from, you know, venture capital groups in the US or that's basically it. So if football is to grow in a different manner than it has been over the years, then UEFA and FIFA might have to accept it. As Chefferin, you know, acknowledged during his interview with Gary Neville recently, they might have to look at the the rules around multi-club ownership because if they don't, you're going to have the situation where Saudi Arabia are on one club, Qatar are on one club, Abu Dhabi are on a club, and that's it. You know, maybe Dubai might get involved, not sure. But it doesn't make sense that only one entity in Saudi or in Dubai or Qatar can own a football club. So I think we're going to get to the point where Qatar or Saudi will own more than one club, but they just have to find a way to separate the management structure. And I don't know how you do that. I mean, but, you know, suppose let's just say that Qatar decided over the years to buy five football clubs, each in different leagues. They might all be owned by the same ultimate group or owner, but I'd imagine there'd be quite a lot of competitiveness between each of those clubs to the point where one club wouldn't want the other club to do well. It, it's not ideal, but I don't think you get you get to a situation where you it's a bit like Formula One, isn't it? And, and drivers, you know, you've got two drivers and one has to do team orders. Whether you have team orders or owner yeah. orders in football, that's the concern, but it's an issue we're gonna to have to deal with because it's not gonna go away. All the money is in the Middle East, and that is where the the next ten years are gonna be decided by the owners of, of these football clubs. I mean, we've seen this, I mean, uh, City Football Group too, you know, the, the amalgamation of football clubs. We've seen this with a Patsy family. And I remember back before this was a thing, United had cooperation agreements with Sport in Lisbon, which led to them getting Ronaldo, which led to them getting Nani. Um, they used Antwerp to send their players out on loan um, to Belgium to get them experience. So there is a way of doing this without having ownership of these football clubs where it works effectively for all parties. I mean, uh, Sporting got to sell those players at a premium, I suppose, to United. Um, United were wired off about Ronaldo's availability because of that. Um, but they still had their autonomy and Sporting didn't feel, what's the point here? Because, you know, it's a massive football club in Portugal. Braga is a big football club in Portugal. And their fans still want to be invested in something. They still want to be successful. I don't want to see big clubs own smaller clubs uh, and use them solely for the purpose of developing talent. You know, we've heard Guardiola say that the Premier League needs a proper under-23 system, you know, that's analogous to what we have in Spain, where they've got the B teams that are that, that are playing in the second, second, second division, second to B. I don't know if I agree with that, but obviously the championship serves for players going out on loan. The under-23 level isn't great. I've talked to Premier League players about this and said the the jump between under twenty three football and Premier League level is massive. I don't know how you fix this problem, but I'm not sure going down the feeder club route is is good for football. No, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, I, I agree with the under twenty three thing. I I just think that would lead to clubs just stockpiling players even more yeah. than they do already, and I think it would mean that the, the clubs that are down the leagues have got less and less talent to to go for. You know, feeder clubs. Certainly, you know, clubs like Sporting Lisbon, they, these are far too big to be a feeder club for anybody, but that might be the way it goes. I hope it doesn't. But I, I remember I was watching the Champions League a couple of weeks ago. I was looking at the draw. And it, it is, you know, great competition that it is. And it's an amazing competition. It, it is the same teams pretty much every year now. Mm -hmm. And I think 
I miss the days, and I'm sure my age here, when you get a, a Starbucks arrest or Red Star Belgrade or, you know... Propulsion Ranger, I remember those well. <laughs> even a Porto or a Monaco getting mm-hmm. to a final and just... That's why Napoli is so refreshing this year, that yeah. Napoli might actually upset everybody. But I think the days when you go into Eastern Europe, for instance, and, and play teams that were just so so good technically and... Red Star Belgrade, I remember that. Yeah. Savita Rich's team, you know, that brilliant Absolutely. Red Star Belgrade team. I was one of the best teams. Sorry to interrupt you, that saw Old Trafford in 91. They were exceptional. Yeah. Panchev, Prozanecki. Yeah, there's, there's all sorts of different reasons why that's not the case anymore, you know. Yeah. The fall of the Berlin Wall and, you know, the great money in, in Europe. But I, I'm not suggesting we go back to a point where players can't leave the country to play in a, right. a bigger league. But I do think that these countries aren't even producing talent anymore. You know, when was it, who was the last great Romanian that made it in oh. Europe? You know, why are they not? So maybe they should be looking at trying to invest all this money in football into these countries, the Romanians, the Bulgarians, that, you know, Bulgaria got to World Cup semi-final in 94. It's a group Stoics call, people like that. These countries aren't producing players. So for the health of the game, it would be better to invest in those countries, Poland, another country, you know, Lewandowski, mm-hmm. but so that the, the depth of talent grows and it's not just centralised into... As we said before, when France beat the Irish last night, that you just know that the France, Italy, Spain, these countries are just going to become stronger and stronger, and it's because their domestic leagues are eating up every other domestic league. The Dutch mm-hmm. league is pretty weak. The Belgian league is pretty weak. You know, Anderlecht used to be a great team in the eighties. That so, out how you kind of redress that balance, I don't know. But there, there's obviously talent in those nations, but it's not being given a chance to flourish, and. If feeder clubs is a way to help that, you know, if Star Bucharest or Dinamo Bucharest become a feeder club, that might help the, the, you know, the kind of the, the organism of the game better. But I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what the answer is, I and mean, nobody yeah. does because, you know, you've got Jeffrey saying one thing, you've got Infantino saying another, a lot of silly things to be, to be fair as well. But I, I do think the next six or seven years, heading up to twenty thirty, going to be the biggest change you've ever seen in football because. Everybody's fighting over a very small area of, of land, I guess. And, you know, FIFA want the greater say. They want the clubs involved. The clubs want uh, their own way of play. The Super League, for instance, Champions League, UEFA want a different thing. So the Premier League, the big Premier League clubs want it, it their own way. The, the, it's not going to go quite like this. There's going to be a, an explosion of ideas and, and people put the, the Wenger situation wanting to change the international calendar. Yeah. There's so many things that are out there that are bubbling away right now. I think at some point in the next two or three years, it's going to explode. And, the game will be totally unrecognisable by 2030. Mark, I wanted to draw your attention away from Manchester and uh, to London for a quick second. Chelsea spent more money uh, in the January transfer window than the entirety of Liga, La Liga, Bundesliga and Serie A, and yet entered March with just one victory in 2023, opened the month with an impressive run of form, beating Leeds, Leicester and Borussia Dortmund, and yet uh, entered the international break with a 2-2 draw to Everton, currently 10th in the league, going to be hosting Aston Villa and Liverpool before traveling to Wolves and taking on Real Madrid. It seems uh, more and more clear that Chelsea won't be playing in the Champions League next season unless they can actually win the competition. It does seem like time is running out for Graham Potter. I'm curious, do you believe that Potter has uh, three weeks, essentially, to save his job? Well, the owners have maintained all along that Potter's position isn't under threat, but I think we all know that it doesn't quite work like that, does it? I mean, managers are safe. They're always safe until they're not safe. And I think we saw Bayern Munich the other day saying that Nagelsmann was safe until like 11pm and he wasn't safe. So clubs will never say 
prior to a manager going into his, you know, two or three weeks to save his job, that he's got two or three weeks to save his job. Don't work like that. But I think you're right. I think I'd be amazed if Chelsea stick with Potter if they're not in the Champions League next season because that is where they have to be to to make this model work. You know, they spent an awful lot of money and they've really taken it to the wire in terms of the contracts they're giving the players and they have to bring in Champions League money to make it pay. So not getting the Champions League would be a massive failure on his part. He's, he's been there long enough to to get him in the he's been there since September. It's not like he's just come in the middle of March. So, you know, but there have been a few examples over recent years of, of managers surprisingly winning the Champions League. You know, Di Matteo, the obvious one at Chelsea when he won it back in uh, 2012. So I'd be surprised if Chelsea beat Real Madrid, but it wouldn't be at this, you know, at the ordinary. And then Bayern Munich come and sit in the semis. They've got a real tough route to the final, but who knows? They've got a, they've got a very talented squad and, you know, may, maybe they can get that way. But it, it, it does remind me a lot of, of, of the David Moyes time at Man United that I just don't think Potter is, is the right fit for the club. I just think, you know, he's obviously a good coach at a certain level, but the leap was too big. And I think the players can smell the fact that he and his, and his staff just not, they're not at the level of the players. He'd never been anywhere near the Champions League before, and I think it showed. I was thinking about him, actually, because I was thinking that not only was he the wrong choice for Chelsea, but Chelsea was the wrong choice for him. Mm. And in many ways, he probably would have been a better choice for Spurs. With the, but, you know, one of the things that we overlook is the the structure of Brighton. You know, Deserby's doing a great job right now. The structure of Brighton is so... I mean, managers rarely feel on their own. They rarely succeed on their own. The structure is just remarkable. I think he's a great coach. And maybe someone like Spurs, he would have been a better fit. But my question related to Chelsea is... Um, and, and, and before we get to Everton, is... One of the things that um, when we talk, just to, to quickly bring it back to another takeover, is that their their spending would be curtailed by FFP. So Qatar wouldn't be able to come in and you know financially dope the football club to go out and buy Bappe and everyone else. I'm moving to Chelsea and I'm going. Imagine they don't qualify for a Champions League. How are they ever going to comply with the FFP? Well, I mean, obviously, I think they've got what is it, 33 first team players, so they're going to have to trim that. They're going to have to get rid of people, and you know, let's start with Lukaku. You know. Obviously, he's got no future there, but who wants to buy him? So <coughs> it's not as easy as saying we'll get rid of all these players. They've got to find somebody to take them off the hands. And people might, but they're going to take them off the hands for a lot less than Chelsea want to sell them for. So mm -hmm. that is the first part of it. They have to offload a lot of those players. But even that is going to cover it because they've got all these players on long term wait on long term contracts. So let's say, you know, Mudrick, I think Mudrick's a good player. I think he will be a star, but he's not really done well at Chelsea. So he had a great debut against Liverpool. But he's really struggled a little bit since then. He's got an eight-year contract. So what happens if at the end of next season, after 18 months, he really isn't showing the sign that he's going to make it? What yeah. do they do then? Do they pay him up for the rest of his six-year contract? They try and get, move him on. So that's the issue that Chelsea are going to have is how do you get rid of these players if they don't cut it? Because he, I think it's had about 10, 12 players. If, they, if eight of those do well, that's a really good hit rate. But that's, that's two to four that don't. And then you've got to move them on. So... The financial model doesn't really stack up at Chelsea unless they're winning. And they're not winning at the moment. So they have got a problem there. And the ground is restricting them in the sense that they can't really monetize Stamford Bridge. I think it holds forty thousand. So they can't you know, they need a stadium that holds seventy thousand to boost their, you know, income from, from gate revenue. So they really are boxed in Chelsea. They need to be in the Champions League. So I don't know where they go next season, but obviously it'd be a very big surprise if they started spending money in this summer because they can't do they just can't. Just a quick follow-up on that. Do you think those are Graham Potter signings? And if they're not, 
cream no. butter signings? Yeah, I don't think so either. So this is obviously going to affect how they employ a new manager because if a new manager comes in and says, I want you to, don't want the contingencies of me coming here is I want you to send my players. They really can't. Yeah. Because they're locked into the players that they have. Sorry, Zach, yeah. I didn't mean that joke with you. I, meant to I don't time. think it works like that anymore, does it? I think, I think one of the reasons they brought Potter in and moved Tuchel out was because they wanted a coach that would basically do as, not as he was told, but would accept what he was working with. I think Tuchel was had earned the right as a Champions League winner and a guy who's managed PSG and Dortmund to say, look, no, that isn't going to work. But the owners didn't want to hear that isn't going to work. They wanted to hear a guy say, yeah, that'll be good. I, you know, look at these players that they've signed. I, I can't see Potter. You know, they're, they're, a lot of them are just kind of click of the finger signings. It was Enzo Fernandez on, on, on Chelsea's list until they had a good yeah. World Cup. Probably yeah. not. So, Potter, to be fair, he's got a great array of talent there. And he's think, you know, I think a an elite coach could go into Chelsea and make a really good team out of it. They've got some very good players, but there's something Potter's an elite coach. I think it's, and I think the players know that. I think the players look at him thinking, how can you make me better? Mm-hmm. And he can't. Mark, uh, we have entered the home stretch of the season. Really, only two teams fighting it out for the title in Arsenal and Manchester City. When you look at the other end of the table, though, it's completely the opposite. Just four points separating 12th place Crystal Palace with last place Southampton. It seems incredibly congested. You've got teams that are used to playing European football like West Ham and Leicester in this fight. I'm curious, you know, what what do you feel have been the biggest reasons for such a congested relegation battle and uh if i had to put a gun to your head who would you go with as the three teams going down to the championship yeah i mean it's up at eight eight and nine teams and it is it is a surprise i mean mm. a lot of people said the world cups had a big factor. so I don't, I don't think any clubs have really got any momentum going down the bottom have they and that's why they're down there and the world cup has been and gone and they've come back and there's no momentum either so they haven't really been able to get a run of results but by this stage it's usually a bit of a breakaway but you know i, I was at the arsenal palace game uh, was it last week for the international break? And I think Palace really could get relegated. I mean, they were they were really really poor. And you look at their the goals output, grim. They haven't won a game this year, twenty twenty three. And I'm not being funny, but Roy Hodgson is not the guy to get you out of a relegation scrap. You know, this is the guy who walks at Watford. He just it hadn't didn't have the energy for it anymore. So, considering only what three points above the bottom three, I think Palace could definitely go. I think. Southampton probably will as well, and maybe Bournemouth. But you know, if you have to put my neck on the block, I would say Southampton, Crystal Palace. I just got a funny feeling about Leeds. I know the new manager's come in and he's, he's he's had a bit of an impact, but Leeds just cannot defend, and they don't score enough goals. So Leeds or Bournemouth, but I'll say Palace, Southampton, and Bournemouth just to avoid. What about Leicester? Leicester. I think yeah. if Madison stays fit, they'll be all right. Yeah, so he had a good, good game the other night. Yeah, Mad- Madison, obviously, he's, not, he's had a bit of a in and out season fitness-wise, but I think he stays fit, they'll be okay. And I think, you know, Ian Atchell will get the odd goal. Obviously, Vardy's coming to the end now, but I think if, if, if they have three or four games at the end of the season, they need to get a result. I think they've got enough Leicester. But they're, they're not great. I mean, you can tell they've not had a lot of investment in the squad for the last two years and they've lost yeah. too many players. But And I think Brendan gets a... A bad rap. I think. I think he will. I think he's, he's smart enough as a coach to know how to get a result. I think they'll be okay. Just to add to your point, just two clean sheets for Leeds since the start of the year. So I definitely agree that mm. their defensive uh, struggles are going to be something that that, that the new manager is going to have to work on. Yeah, they're a strange side, Leeds. They really are. I mean, they could they could score three or four in a game, but they could concede three or four. And I think 
it's whether Javi Grazia has got enough time to to get that right. Patrick Bamford needs to start scoring again. Obviously, he's had his injuries, but now if I was a Leeds fan, I'd be worried because they do they are very loose, and that's that's a, a legacy of Bielsa and, and, and Jesse Marsh. And I think having had that approach for what, three or four years now, I think Grazia is going to find it difficult to you know pull a handbrake turn it so quickly and and keep them up. They spent some money in January. I mean, they went and got Ruder. They went out and bought the bought um, uh, Wilfred McKinney, and yeah. you know they they the Wilbur the centre back. I mean, aren't they going to be sold again this season? Who leads? Yeah, I thought I heard that they were Ramazani was was looking to uh, that uh, Americans were going to take over. Yeah, I mean, obviously the the Forty Nineers have got a big a big uh, chunk of leads. Whether they increase that stakes, I, I don't think the Forty Nineers are going to go anywhere. That they, so it may be Ramazani kind of. Offers more of his state to them, but from what I heard, the, the 49ers are in it for the long term. But I just think they've made some strange decisions. I think, you know, why on earth Jesse Mars got the job when he did? He hadn't earned it, he'd just been sat by Leipzig. So it's not not the sort of guy that had arrived there with a great track record. I just think it was because he'd worked within the Red Bull model, Leeds, his owners liked that Red Bull model, but and they basically bought a lot of players from Red Bull, Salzburg or Leipzig, but it's not really worked out. So I think they need to address their view of. How they bring players in before they find a manager that works with them. I want to turn our attentions to the other end of the table, uh, the noisy neighbours. Um, and Manchester City's Erling Holland. Um, I had high expectations for him, and I say this through gritted teeth, but he is truly phenomenal. And what he has done this season, I mean, we often use the, the phrase the most competitive league in the world. And his numbers are just utterly ridiculous and with the exception of injury um, I can't see anything else that could stop him there's the argument whether he makes City a better team and I was looking at City's goals I'd say to Holland uh, Foden is 9 the rest of 5-4 and there isn't a lot of goals in the rest of that City team that we've seen before so maybe there is something to that mind you you have a striker that scores goals with that regularity most teams would take that in the world um, how, how highly do you rate Holland in relation to the Ronaldos of this world, the the best players that we've seen in the Premier League, and uh, do you think you make, do, 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 do you ask the question? Do you think he makes them a better team? I mean, City have had a weird season. They could win the treble, they could do the treble, the the Man United treble, or they could end up with nothing. I mean, yeah, they, they could end up with nothing. I mean, they really are in the knife. Is that because they've not had a great season? But it would be ironic if they did that in the year that they probably had a bit of an indifferent season. Yeah, not being the same city, but that I think a lot of that is down to Haaland in the sense that they don't have the same control of games as they did prior to Haaland being there because they're trying to be they're trying to quicken the game up to get the ball to Haaland quicker. We've seen we've seen games and you'll have seen the analysis certainly after away games where he makes the runs and they don't pick him out. They're, they pass, pass, pass sideways. They're not really picking him out. So the fact he scored so many goals when he's making runs, they're not seeing it is is incredible. But in terms of how good is he, obviously as a, as a goal scorer, is is incredible. But I watch him a lot, and I do think that you take away his goals, and this is this is like well, his goals are great. But mm. I think that had City got Harry Kane, Harry Kane would have been a much better fit for that team because he can hold the ball up better. He can he can he's more of a team player. Can bring players in. When Haaland's got his back to goal, it bounces off him. He can't hold it up. And also, he doesn't like being closely marked. I mean, I remember the FA Cup tie against Arsenal where Rob Holding was brought in to do a job on him, and he did. So that kind of close attention, which I think United did in the 2-1 in the, the derby. So he's a strange he's a strange player. He's, he's, like the, he's like the kid in the playground when you were younger that was, you know, 
much bigger than everybody else. Maybe year old, and just ran through teams. Just and he just scored. He he, he plays like a big kid as well. He he's got that enjoyment, that youthful enjoyment. But I do think when it gets serious, when it gets like a bit tough physically, he's not the same player. So he's not in the same league for me yet as a Kane, a Lewandowski. Ronaldo, not there yet. I think he has to add more to his game, but I think Guardiola's trying to do that. But what do you do? Do you kind of say, stop doing this, do this, because he's scoring so many goals. So it's a real difficult one. You know, He's a bit like Van Nistelrooy, isn't he? Mm. He just offers goals. And when United had Van Nistelrooy, they, they won a couple of trophies, but they didn't they didn't dominate as you'd expect them to with a, such a prolific goal scorer. And they had to sell them to win the Champions League, to be fair. You know, when they, they get rid of them, then they win the Champions League. Uh, oh, United? Yeah, when they, they well, won yeah, I mean, the year you, after they sold them, I think. Well, you could argue that getting rid of Van Nistelrooy enabled Ferguson to bring Ronaldo, Rooney and Sahar through. Mm. And, that was, and then Tevez came and took the Sahar thing. That was probably the better team of the lot. Maybe City were better as a team prior to Haaland coming, but... It's, it's a real dilemma, isn't it? You know, United fans still talk about Van Nistelrooy, still love Van Nistelrooy for oh, goals. Oh, he's a brilliant finisher. But was he a great team player? He's a great goal scorer. I think Haaland's the same, but you'd, mm-hmm. you'd take him because he scores so many goals. Yeah. Mark, it does feel like the gap between the two Manchester teams has has been bridged by Eric Ten Hag's arrival and uh, plenty of the new signings. And yet, United 11 points behind Manchester City with a game in hand. I think that there's not that much between these two teams, but uh, if, if you're looking at individual positions, I think that one of the perhaps one of the starkest differences comes at the center forward position. Manchester City with the top goal scorer in Europe in Erling Haaland, and Manchester United, you've got Wood Weghorst, who has definitely made an impact, but uh, just two goals in all competitions, if I'm not mistaken. Anthony Martial, frankly, cannot stay fit. You know, I'm curious, how big of a priority do you think center forward is going to be for Manchester United? And are there any names that you're hearing uh, with regards to potential reinforcements at position? I know that you mentioned Harry Kane. His contract is expiring in 2024. Do you feel like he could be a valid option for them that they're considering? Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of priorities, he's the absolute, no, sorry, center forward is the absolute number one priority. They've been looking, I mean, when they signed Veghorst, they made it clear that to Ten Hag that, look, bring him in now and we will get you the guy in the summer, we'll get a proper guy in the summer. So the conversations I've had are that they like Kane, but they are worried that having dealt with Daniel Levy in the past with Carrick and Berbatov, that they know they know his playbook. It'll be, he's not for sale, he's not for sale. We want £150 million for him and then take it all the way to the transfer deadline. And, and people at United are saying to me, if we could say today we'll get Harry Kane, brilliant, we'll take him. But they can't wait to the last day of the window because they need him in in July. They, they can't be messing around, missing yeah. six weeks now. So, And also, if they wait till the end of the window, they might not get him. Levy might say, no, you're not having him. So there's a real concern about having to deal with Levy. So they are looking at alternative options. And those, I've been told, they are obviously Ossiemen at Napoli. You know, great option, but Napoli want at least 100 million euros, which is a big, a big chunk. Again, I've been told there are a couple of reservations that he's had a great season, but... Lukaku had a great season at Inter, went to Chelsea, didn't really cut it. How how good is he in terms of how good is Serie A, basically? So, question marks over Ossiman. I think he's better than Lukaku, but I can see why United are asking those questions. They've looked at um, Vlajevic at Juventus. I think there's a feeling that Juve need to sell because of the situation they're in with points deductions and missing out on Champions League. Vlajevic 
he's decent, but he's they think he's a bit too one-footed and probably not tier one in terms of being a, a world-class striker. And then there's others, you know, people like Benjamin Sesko at, at, at Salzburg, who's got this deal in place to sign for Leipzig. But obviously Salzburg and Leipzig, you know, yeah. same, same owners, basically. So that, that might be able to be resolved. So they've got targets in place, but they're all difficult to get and they've all got their own. They're either difficult to get or they might not be the, the, the proper solution. But all things being considered, Harry Kane will be the obvious one. But like I say, it's dealing with Daniel Levy and that's, that's the problem that United are facing. Um, one or two questions left and before I let you go appreciate you being so generous with your time I want to ask you about um, about Mikel Arteta because I never saw this coming <laughs> if you'd have asked me at the start of the season where Arsenal would finish I'd have said probably outside the top four right um, I never saw this consistency I never saw this team spur coming from Arteta and they're top one merit and I thought by this stage they'd have been overcome, they'd have been caught by City, but they haven't. And this looks like a really good young Arsenal team. And to be fair, they've held their nerve. And do you think they're going to win the league? Where did this come from, by the way, or two? Yeah, listen, I'm, I'm with you. I, I saw them collapse at the end of last season, losing to Spurs and uh, Newcastle. They were, they were awful. And I, I thought that's, that, that issue they had with the mentality was just, you know, ingrained. I don't know how, how you got rid of it, but you made some very good signs in the summer. Gabriel Jesus and Zinchenko particularly, just brought a mentality shift at the club. And I think, obviously, Saka's come on a leaps and bounds this year. He's a great player already, but he's, he's just he's just grown into this, you know, almost world-class player now. And he will be a world-class player, but he's different different level. And I think, you know, Saliba's come back from nowhere. You know, at, at one point, they didn't like they, they fancied Saliba, but he's been a rock at the back. And Ramsdale, I think, you know, that time you look at Ramsdale and go thinking he's going to make a mistake, but he hasn't done. You know, and he's brought another attitude shift as well. So all the building blocks have, have suddenly fallen together. But I, I agree. I, I was, I didn't really see it coming. I think they've had, they've had a good run of injuries and they've had a good run of hitting teams that have been out of form at the right time. That's not taking anything away from us. You've got to beat all the teams you face. But they've just kept the foot on the pedal. And to to be so far clear now, in the middle of March, end of March, there's no fluke. Mm-hmm. But they've got. I think they've got two massive games coming that they've got. City away, yeah. Liverpool away, and you can see them losing both of those games because that's the, the tough places to go. They always lose at City. They always mm. lose at City. Yeah, and Liverpool, as Man United found out recently, even when Liverpool yeah, had this thing I won, and I thought we'd see it home and dry. Yeah. <laughs> well, but beyond that, they've got nothing to worry about. I think they've got Newcastle away, which they'll win. They've got Chelsea at home. Not, not sure Chelsea will be a threat. So. It's those two games. And even if they lose those two games, they can still do it because City would have to win all of theirs. So if you ask me now, I'd say, yeah, Arsenal are going to win the league because they've got to this point now where they've given themselves such a good cushion that they can afford a couple of bad results. So I can let you ask a last question and take it out, man. Mark, I wanted to ask you about uh, some very important news with regards to Everton. They have been referred to an independent commission by the Premier League over an alleged breach of financial fair play rules dating back to last season, both Leeds and Burnley raising issue with their losses of £370 million between 2018 and 2021, way more than the £105 million a pound allowance over a three-year period. So I'm curious, what do you feel are the potential consequences to come from uh, this Everton situation? Of course, they still may get relegated, but uh, it seems like they have been finding themselves in the headlines for the wrong reasons over the past few years due to their financial troubles. What are you hearing from this? And uh, what do you feel could happen as a result of this investigation? 
Well, I think the first thing to say is that I don't think I don't think people expect this to be resolved this season. So in terms of a points deduction, I don't think it would come this year to the point where it would relegate them. It might do, but I think the timescale is well, we're nearly in April now, so I think it'd be unlikely because let's say they fast-tracked it, Everton would appeal and it just dragged yeah. around forever. So I think it'd be next season. But, you know, Everton have been overspending and spending badly for a long time, you know, probably since the start of the Mishiri regime. So this is now, it's all coming home to roost. I think, obviously, one big mitigation in their losses, they will, they will cite COVID. And I think, you know, whether it works or not, I don't know, but obviously COVID did have a massive impact on a lot of clubs and Everton in particular because, you know, their ground is not, built to raise any money outside of what happens on match days. So they can't even, you know, post-COVID, they couldn't make any more money from, you know, the ground. So Everton have got a big problem. But I think the nightmare scenario for Everton is to, if they get relegated this season and then they have a points deduction next season in the Championship, the year before they go to the new stadium, because a points deduction in the Championship would just kill them because they would, you know, how do you get, out, how do you get back in the Premier League in time for your new stadium being open? So the next 12 months are going to be massive for Everton. And, you know, if they do get a points deduction next season, it's going to be tough for them. But I don't see a positive outcome. Really, I don't. I, it's just, it's just a bleak landscape for Everton, isn't it? If you're an Everton fan, I'm sorry, I can't think of anything to say that's going to reassure you. That, apart you from the fact that they probably won't get deducted this season. Do you see any situations between this and the Derby situation? I don't know. I mean, Everton are a much bigger club, and I think they've got. They've still got that appeal in terms of somebody would buy Everton because of who they are and what they are, despite what they've been recently. I still think with the ground as well, Everton would find a, a solution, I think. But, you know, they're massive, massive losses and not, no business can sustain that for a long period of time. But maybe I'm wrong. I just think Everton's history and their pedigree would, would mean at some point somebody would come along and, and get them out of the mess they're in. Such a shame, such a massive club. Mark, thanks very much for coming on, mate. Much appreciated. Don't forget, give us a follow. I appreciate you coming on the pod. Probably dodged me now for a year after keeping so long. Thanks very much for doing this, mate. Much appreciated. And uh wish you all the best, my friend. Thanks, Augie. Cheers, pal.